Welcome back to the Autoblog Podcast. I'm Greg Migliori. We have an awesome show for you this week. Uh, lots of news to talk about, and we've been driving some interesting things. We're going to talk about the Honda Pilot Elite, which I drove last weekend. Very nice SUV. A little bit more on the BMW i7, which is quite comfortable and uh, explored it a little bit more. And we'll get into some news, namely the Daytona concept. This sort of preview of the Charger. Uh, we've got some uh, an interesting spy photo of it. Let's put it that way. So with that, I will bring in news editor Joel Stocksdale. How are you doing? Not too bad. All right. Uh, lots of stuff to talk about, and we will spend some money. If you want us to spend your money, that's podcast at autoblog.com. So uh, let's start things off. Why don't we kind of talk a little bit about the i7? It's certainly more expensive than the Pilot, and we both drove it. John, Zach, and I talked about this last week on the show. Uh, real quick, I think it'd be good get a little get a little bit more into it i actually finally got to drive this one and of course you drove it too but uh man it's a beautiful car um the massaging seats are outstanding i must say uh, i like to kind of rank uh which cars have the best massagers this is up there uh and i'm sure you've probably explored some more um you know interest not interesting but more maybe important parts so what did you think of the i7 so I want to preface this by saying that, broadly speaking, flagship sedans just don't do it for me. Okay. For whatever reason, I don't know. They, I guess I feel like for a lot of cases, like the next size smaller sedan makes a lot more sense just kind of getting that blend of sportiness and luxury without going for such a huge package. Mm-hmm. However... I fell hard for this i7. I really, okay. really, really liked it. A big part of that was the interior. It is absolutely gorgeous. The seats, even without using the massaging, are so nice. And this one was equipped with cloth seats, uh, just kind of like a higher-end option. And it's they just it felt really, really soft, and you just sank right in very relaxing looked gorgeous it had all of the like cut crystal glass appointments all throughout really nice leather it just it's a fantastic cabin and i was really impressed with how it drove it it could be super soft and cushy when you wanted it to but you stick it into kind of the sport mode and firms up decently still has good body control and actually you know, felt like you could drive it quickly and it actually enjoyed it. I was, I was super, super pleased. Yeah. It's, um, you know, having been able to kind of get into it and spend some more time with it, you know, I really, I certainly appreciated the creature comforts, but to your, you know, to your point, it drives really well. It has the, like the four wheel steering. So it almost like pivots, you know, when you're moving and it's a, it's a good sized car. So I really thought that was a good, a good benefit. Something that for a car this size, I would really want that. Um, I think too, I've always liked the driving dynamics of V7 series, whether it's internal combustion or electric. And this is, uh, I think this kind of lives up to what a seven series should be too. I thought it was interesting too, how many people liked uh, the interior uh, like people are just gushing over it. And it's a very nice interior. 
But I mean, we also had this car at the same time as we had a GLS Maybach. And it seemed like a lot of people liked this even more than the than you know the Maybach. It was, I almost thought it was like a Volvo or a Polestar. The inside, it was so like kind of like tan and creamy and wood, and just the the lights at night were gorgeous. Uh, very nice car. Very nice car. Yeah, I think I I think you I think you kind of hit the nail on the head. It has a little bit of that sort of modern borderline Scandinavian design to the inside, and I think that's what makes it kind of pop compared to the high end Mercedes stuff. Mm-hmm. Is the high end Mercedes stuff is very it's a bit glitzy. Mm-hmm. Um, lots of chrome, lots of lights. Uh, it's very flashy. And I think what BMW is doing well right now is they're leaning more into sort of like more kind of modern design, sort of very unique materials, unique stitching and fabric patterns and things that we're not necessarily accustomed to seeing in a lot of cars. Uh, it makes them, it makes them very different. And I, and I really appreciate that. Yeah. It's a, uh, it's a good execution, uh, you know, for this, I think evolution of the seven series. So talk about the Honda pilot, I guess there's no real way to transition from that to a more, uh, everyday crossover, something that's quite ubiquitous on the road. Uh, this is, this is a solid vehicle. I think it, um, you know, I, so I had the elite trim to start with that, which starts at about 52, uh, $52,000. So just frankly, above the price of the average new vehicle in the United States for October, which is 48. So all in all, it felt like a pretty good, good value. Felt like a lot of crossover to me. Uh, which is good. You get a lot of stuff too, like heated and ventilated seats, second row heated seats. Uh, you get the cluster, the the larger one, which is like 10.2 inches, I think. Yes, 10.2. Uh, and it looked it looked pretty good. I think it uh, Honda's evolved their you know their design in the last couple of years. I think they've made the uh, you know the front end is a little more. It's almost like more squared off. That grill's a little bit bigger. And I like it. It was, uh, you know, it was a weekend where I had both the i7 and the Pilot. And you might think, well, you're going to drive the i7 and forget about this Honda. But that wasn't the case. I, I really liked it. It's, it's functional. It's roomy. We put a ton of stuff in it, you know, like soccer stuff, camping chairs, because we were just everywhere last weekend. And, you know, groceries, all that type of thing. Very comfortable. And, you know, I... It, ten, it seems like it's gotten pretty good reviews, I would say, from most uh, most of our colleagues and competitors, if you will. Uh, it's a very crowded, crowded segment, you know, with the Highlander, the Grand Highlander, like all sorts of things in there that you could, depending on if you want, you know, two or three rows, it's, it's a hyper competitive segment. Um, but all in all, I liked it. I liked it a lot. Uh, we actually had it in the fleet because you can remove the second row center console and stow it in the back, which is part of our tech of the year testing. Uh, I did that and then I left it back there because I kind of liked having that pass through. You essentially at that point have captain's chairs. 
it's really easy to stow. It's not that heavy. It, it comes with like a strap to put it down. And then it fits neatly in a like a cargo area in the back. And then you just pull the carpet down and you're good. So, you know, that was a nice feature too. I'm not sure how much I would actually use that. I feel like I'd probably leave it stowed and then bring it out when I needed it. Uh, but that all, I guess, depends on what your use case is. So uh, I, obviously you were in the pilot for tech of the year. Have you driven it significantly at any other point, Joel? Yeah, because I was actually the caretaker of it before it got to tech of the year. So mm. I actually did have some decent time driving it. Yeah. And yeah, it's fine. Uh, <laughs> but to tell you the truth, I was a little, I was just whelmed with it. Whelmed. Okay. Yeah. Um, very spacious. Uh, and I do like that because one of the benefits with that removable middle seat is that when you don't have it in the back, you have like this actually very deep well in the back mm -hmm. that's great for storing all kinds of stuff. Uh, driving it though, I don't know. I I think I actually almost like the older one a little bit better. I think the older one felt a little bit more responsive and taut in the handling department. It kind of feels like they may have softened up and tried to make the new pilot maybe a little bit more truck-like to kind of go with its yeah. more kind of truck-like appearance. Uh, I don't know that that's necessarily a negative, maybe a little bit more of a lateral move, because I will admit, I think the looks of it are much better than the old one. It looks more, uh, it looks more SUV-ish. And okay. it doesn't sacrifice any of the excellent space efficiency that the pilot has had. And yeah, I just, I don't know. I just didn't find the driving experience all that great. The engine, I mean, it's a very smooth Honda V6, but it's starting to feel a tad underpowered, um, mainly in kind of like the low RPM range because a lot of the competition is going to large displacement turbo four cylinders. And those are fantastic for running around town because you have this kind of nice, easy lump of torque. Whereas in the Honda, you really kind of have to rev it up to get it going. So thank goodness it's fairly smooth. Uh, the interior also very functional, but a little bit on kind of the more utilitarian side. And, you know, there's nicer... There's nicer interiors out there from like Kia and Hyundai. And I think kind of a dark horse in the group, even though it shouldn't be, the Nissan Pathfinder uh, right now is actually quite yeah. good. Um, so yeah, I don't know. It just, it's still a good option. It just didn't really blow me away. I think I, I think there are still other things that I would get ahead of it. Yeah, same. I, by saying I enjoyed it, that doesn't mean it would be the top of my list. I don't think you'd go wrong with it either because mm -hmm. I think it's solid. It's a Honda. It's useful. I think they've done a good job of making it a little, you know, I would almost say it's like the Nissan Pathfinder approach where you like try to steer into that like trucky kind of feel like you said, uh, you know, because with the, the Pathfinder, they even say it as four-wheel drive, but we all know it's all-wheel drive and all the ads for that are like, Pathfinders going off-road. Honda's not necessarily doing that with the Pilot, but they're definitely, 
I think they've made it a little tougher, let's put it that way, or tried to try to create the idea of a tougher pilot. So, yeah. And like the pilot trail sport, I think is probably one of the more capable uh, sort of crossover SUVs out there in that size class for kind of going off road and things. But yeah, I don't know. It's, it doesn't quite feel like the class leader that I'd hope. I, I sure wish that they would offer some kind of hybrid powertrain on this kind of, uh, cause Honda makes really good hybrids yeah. and it would be cool to see that available yeah. in this class. Cause right now the options are pretty much what Ford and Toyota, I think. Yeah, that sounds right. Yeah. I'm trying to think if anybody else has one in this area. Yeah. Oh, no, I mean, that's... Ma- the Mazda has the CX 90 plug-in hybrid now. Well, that's true. But that's arguably slightly more premium focused. I'd almost kind of like put up there with sort of like Grand Cherokee, which also mm-hmm. has a plug-in hybrid now. That's true. Yeah. And the Grand Cherokee is, I think, does legitimately affect more of that off-roady vibe than perhaps what the pilot may or may not be totally going for. So why don't we uh, kind of juice things up and talk about spy photos we have of the uh, what appears to be the Dodge Charger Daytona uh, in some sort of uh, shot on a factory floor. You can see what appears to be essentially just the body. And it is, um, you know, this seems to indicate that something pretty close to that concept from last year is going to go into production. Now, there's a lot to unpack here, uh, including the fact that, you know, you know, there's a lot of unanswered questions. You know, a lot of people are thinking this means this could mean the charger is going two doors, because if you look at the body, that's what it would indicate. A lot of people also have even said, well, hey, maybe this means the internal combustion variant will continue. It won't be all um, all electric. We do expect there to be an all, you know, all electric charger and maybe challenger but for what it's worth dodge has never really filled in the blanks here they said they're going to sunset this generation the lx generation of charger challenger and 300 and then they said they're going to make an electric muscle car and then they showed that concept and then they've kind of like sort of let us fill in the blanks and it allowed us to even connect the dots which haven't always led from a to b to c so you wrote this story I mean, what do you think? Well, so the overall shape of it looks <clears throat> extremely close to mm-hmm. the Charger Daytona SRT concept. Yep. Um, yep. It's got, I mean, the lines, the profile, the kind of long two-door shape. It's all there. It looks mm-hmm. pretty much just like it. This is a bare unibody frame so it's mainly kind of like the rear quarter panels door openings and kind of like the front frame rails but there's enough there that we can kind of get the idea and i mean that concept was unabashedly electric and like dodge and tim caniscus were saying quite clearly that they're going to do an electric muscle car and that that Mm -hmm. concept is going to be the preview of the next round of like Dodge muscle cars. So, I mean, that seems pretty clear 
that this is one that this is one of those electric muscle cars. Mm-hmm. It's hard to say whether or not for sure if this will be called Charger or if it will be called Challenger, because obviously that two door concept was called Charger. Which was interesting because mm-hmm. since 2005, the Charger has been a four door. That's right. And the Challenger has been the two door. Now, it, it would be interesting to see if Charger became a two door again because that seems like the Challenger slot. Mm-hmm. And I mean, both the four door Charger and the two door Challenger seem to have sold quite well for each, respectively. There's clearly a market for both. So it'd be strange for them not to have both options. Plus, Dodge was a little cagey about whether the concept was going to be just the one vehicle or if, like, it's sort of an amalgamation of two. That's maybe still a little bit unclear. Maybe the maybe the Charger will be in two and four-door variants and then Challenger will be something else. Maybe it'll shrink in size and become more sports car-ish. I don't know. This is starting to get kind of speculative, though. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, one thing we can see that's different than the um, the concept is there is that big B-pillar going right down the middle, as you would expect. And that certainly indicates, you know, like you said, they're going to take something pretty close to that concept and then build it. So, um, you know, we'll see. Now, granted, this, like, the shell we're seeing, the chassis, is more or less just like you know, kind of like a one-off shot. It's not coming down like an assembly line. It's just there, you know. So it could even be they're like, they could be building pre-pro cars. It could mean they're just kind of testing how things might work, um, you know, that type of thing. Uh, there's a lot of conspiracy theories. You know, again, and we've talked about this in a variety of places, is what does this mean for the Charger and the Challenger? Because they have two pretty competitive vehicles in an area where basically Dodge alone is competing. You know, you have a Challenger that sells pretty well. If you were to just give it up and make a two-door Charger, while that may be romantic, and we all, I think a lot of us love the idea of a two-door Charger, you're kind of giving up some sales potentially, you know, probably on both sides of it. You're giving up like some sedan sales, which is not as much of a market as it was in 05 when the Charger came back. You're also giving up, you know, what people who did specifically want that Challenger. So um, we'll see. And the other thing, even though they haven't said anything, um, that doesn't mean something isn't going to happen. That means they're, they could just be planning on bringing the Charger and Challenger back. And they just haven't quite explained that yet. That's entirely possible as well. I mean, I have no doubt that, like, both nameplates, uh, well, at least one of the two nameplates will come back. Yes. Um, pro- and probably both. Uh, there's too there's too much goodwill with them. Yeah. Um, as for, like, that B-pillar, one of the things to note about it is that, I mean, it was probably necessary to add a B-pillar to mm-hmm. that Charger concept for safety reasons. You're probably not even going to notice it. It's definitely designed to have a panel and probably the entire rear quarter glass go over it to maintain the hard top appearance. Uh, But one of the other things that stood out to us is that looking head on at this frame, 
it really, really looks like there's a large transmission tunnel and uh, an opening for the drive shaft to the back. Now, since this is presumably going to be an electric car, not really a need for that. Um, I've seen some argument that it could be for storing batteries, but everything that we've seen of the STLA large electric chassis platform that will be underpinning this shows like a flat skateboard battery arrangement. You could have some like controllers and things go through there, but this still seems kind of large for that. So the thing that has the, the thing that we're wondering is, will there be an internal combustion version of this kind of for a few years until things go fully electric? I've heard mixed things out of Dodge. Tim Kaniskas has said that they probably could put something in, but they, that doesn't necessarily mean that they will. It's a little bit fuzzy. It seems fairly plausible to drop in, say, like the Hurricane Twin Turbo Straight 6 into this. Yeah. Maybe even a version of like the plug-in hybrid powertrain from Grand Cherokee and um, Wrangler. Because those are also longitudinal, rear-drive biased powertrains as sort of stuff to kind of wean people off of the gas engines for like one more generation. I mean, it's, it, it makes some sense. Uh, it'll, it'll be interesting to see if that is the case. So here's another thought as I think about it. What if they made one of those two nameplates all electric and the other offered like an ice combination? And then you could survive with two even coupes, hypothetically. Now we're really speculating here. But, you know, if you want to go plug in hybrid or drive that nice Hurricane 6, maybe you pick one. And then if you want to go all electric, cool. You've got the other one. And then they're just going coupes, which, I mean, that's an unconventional strategy. But um, this is Dodge we're talking about. They made more out of cars than almost any other brand in the last two decades. So, I mean, we'll see. Yeah. Uh, no matter what, no matter what, it's going to be interesting. And it's going to be fun, I think, no matter what, too. And Dodge is promising lots and lots of power. They mm -hmm. they said that uh, kind of entry level versions of this electric muscle car would probably be around 456 horsepower, and kind of the upper ones being about 590 horsepower. And actually, that's for the 400 volt architecture cars. There will also be like an ultra high performance 800 volt architecture car with an undisclosed amount of power. Wow. All right. Well, check out the pictures. We ran the story. You're listening to the say on Friday, Saturday. It's the weekend. Hope you're enjoying it. Uh, we ran this on Tuesday afternoon. So you're going to want to go back and check these out. It's pretty interesting. Um, all right. And then we have some rumors about a possible return of the Celica for Toyota. Speaking of names that may or may not come back. Uh, the big question I think people have is, 
well, how many like sports coupes do they need? Because they have the 86 right now. Uh, you know, discussion, our Slack channels are like, hey, maybe that these cars, maybe like the Charger and Challenger would have different missions, uh, which I think could work. Um, I think it certainly has a ton of like widespread, you know, name recognition. So depending on how they do it, it, it certainly could could work. Uh, you know, how do you feel about this? Yeah, so this came about because there was an interview with Akio Toyota where he said he wants a Celica and he's pushing yeah. for it. Yeah. He also, in that interview, said that doesn't mean that the company will do it. Uh, he pointed out to the fact that he had different ideas for where the Prius should go um, than what we got, which I think in this case, I'm glad that the company kind of pushed back and was like, no, we're going to do the Prius this way because the new Prius is cool. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 So I have mixed feelings because I wouldn't mind seeing another kind of sporty coupe out of Toyota, but it's hard for me to see where it would fit. Because mm -hmm. right now the 8.6 very much occupies the affordable, cheap end of that spectrum. Mm -hmm. And it does so very effectively being a very rare, affordable rear drive sports coupe with decent performance. And then up at the upper end, you've got the Toyota Supra. And there is a decent bit of breathing room in there since Supra, I'm blanking at the top of my head, kind of base pricing for the four-cylinder Supra, which actually, historically, a four-cylinder Supra would have been called a Celica because the Supra was the six-cylinder version of the Celica. But I digress. Yeah. <laughs> um, kind of already occupying that sort of middle ground in that sort of thirty to $40,000 range is the GR Corolla. And that also sort of fits some of the historical kind of performance niche of the Celica being an all-wheel drive Toyota that has some rally heritage because that was sort of the thing that Celica had going for it. It had the all-track and GT4 models that were campaigned in World Rally Championship. So it's hard to think of where a slot would fit. The, the possible option I could see is if they brought it out as an electric sports car, which I think would be super, super cool. And coming up next week at the Tokyo Motor Show, Toyota is going to show an electric sports coupe concept. Yeah. Now, if they haven't said anything about whether it will reach production. Toyota's had a lot of electric concepts. Um, not all of them are coming to production. That being said, most of them have been developed seemingly as a good jumping off point for a production vehicle. They haven't been super outlandish. So I could almost see that being the path because that would be something that would differentiate it enough from the existing internal combustion sports vehicles and doing so with a brand name that has a lot of goodwill toward it. So that would be kind of the option I would see. The only, the only other thing that I could really see as maybe being an option would be if it could somehow 
come back as something that could undercut the Toyota 86 as sort of like a budget front drive sporty coupe thing, almost like Hyundai Veloster was for, well, Hyundai. Yeah. But that's that's tough to do, especially especially with how aggressively priced 86 is. And you end up with a situation kind of like the Cyan TC where, yes, you can have this front drive thing, but for a few thousand dollars more, you can have rear wheel drive and kind of amazing handling and things and like more true sports car-ness uh, for not a lot more money. And I mean, we saw, we saw who came away from that fight. It was the FRS and later 8.6. Yeah, I think the other part of that too is, you know, let's just say you, you know, you do roll out like a Veloster. What does that really do for you as a company? Is that where Toyota needs to go, you know, to get into that sort of segment again? I don't know. I mean, it doesn't seem like that that gets them much, you know, regardless of what you call it. So, yeah. All right. Well, Charger, Challenger, Celica, it's... A little bit of a retro news segment. Uh, next week, you're going to Tokyo, and that's going to probably be awesome. We're seeing a few more things coming out for the show next week. Uh, one thing I really loved was this Toyota minivan uh, concept thing they showed. I thought that was really cool. Uh, the pictures are great. You should check it out. It kind of almost looks like, a, I don't know, this is another almost like Scandinavian vibe. They have it in this like winterscape. Uh, and it's an idea uh, of like what, sort of a future minivan could be. I think that's kind of cool. Uh, but what else are you looking forward to for the, this is called the Japan Mobility Show. So it's a bit of a rebranding, but it also is looking to be a bit, um, you know, a bit busy, if you will, uh, as far as auto show go, auto shows go. So what are you looking forward to? Yeah, there's actually quite a lot that I'm very excited for. We are I already touched on the electric Toyota sports car concept. Yeah. Uh, Lexus is going to have kind of a sporty concept too. Subaru is good. For whether, I don't know. I don't know what's happening, but this supposed mobility show is mm-hmm. actually going to be a really great car show with lots of new stuff. And a mm-hmm. lot of it is like sporty stuff. Subaru yeah. Subaru is going to have an electric sports coupe that they're going to show concept again, but you know, fingers crossed. Hopefully, maybe something will come of it. Mazda is going to show what is expected to be the preview of the next generation Mazda Miata, um, and then there's going to be a lot of funky, cool little little things from Suzuki and Daihatsu. Um, Mitsubishi is going to have this kind of off-roady minivan thing. Nissan is going to have some interesting looking concepts. Um, <laughs> they they showed pictures of this uh, hyper tour concept that very futuristic kind of polygonal looking minivan thing. It's it's a bit odd, and a couple of the concept things are, are looking a bit odd. But yeah, it's like every big Japanese manufacturer is showing lots of stuff, and a lot of it like the kind of stuff that enthusiasts should be excited about. It's, it's really weird. It's like, this is, this is kind of what the, we've been waiting for, for auto shows since like the end, since the start of the pandemic, Honda is going to show some sporty stuff too. And like a, and a concept kind of based on their old Honda city hatchback, which 
goes great with their Moto Compacto, which is a an electric takeoff of the Moto Compo scooter, which was designed mm-hmm. to fit in the back of that Honda City. So it looks like it's going to be a great show. I'm super excited for it. Yeah, I think it's going to be cool. I think one thing when we've talked about like um, auto shows and their somewhat demise is we've definitely tended to view them through a U.S. centric lens. I think there's a couple things at play here uh, that could make you know the Tokyo show a bit different. Uh, traditionally, it's held every other year, so frankly, I think this is like you're not going to sit this out if you're one of the uh, you know Japan's big three. You're not going to sit this out, so they all have a reason to show up. Um, you know, it, it's an interesting venue. I think it's it good time of the year. You know, all those things start to come into play. And I think you also have uh, some other, you know, automakers like BMW, I believe is going to show the X2 there. So it seems to be lining up right on the calendar for a lot of different companies. And frankly, BMW showing up for Tokyo would be one of the first instances I can think of, of sort of a non like almost like domestic or parochial automaker showing up and showing out at a show that isn't necessarily theirs. You know, the Detroit three barely have showed up for Detroit. Um, New York, Chicago, and LA are like a hodgepodge of who might decide they want to spend some marketing money at that given moment. And the European auto shows have just been basically Germany or uh, France, frankly, with whatever Paris would try to be. So it's like, I think this is interesting. I don't think this is like, a rebirth of auto shows, but I think it could be an indication. Uh, and I think we've seen a little of this at LA where it's sort of cobbled together a decent rundown in some of the years since, you know, the pandemic, um, or they might get a fairly cosmopolitan group of OEMs. So we'll see. Yeah. I think you touched on a key thing there that since Tokyo show is usually not every year, it's every other year there's probably a bit of pent up kind of mm-hmm. development and design and, and also being kind of the home market for these Japanese automakers. This is their chance to put on a big show. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a little bit of that uh, in Germany too. Munich had a, a bit of that. I, I was hoping for more um, with some debuts from VW and uh, BMW. And I think... I think that may be a little bit of an issue for the U.S. because we have three of the kind of traditional major auto shows, New York, mm-hmm. Detroit, and L.A. So, and those happen every year. So the automakers kind of have to pick and choose like, okay, which of these are we going to bring stuff to? So in some ways, gosh, I really hate to say this, but I kind of wonder if we would see better American shows if there actually weren't as many. Um, that's a really good point. Yeah. If like, there was just like, you know, let's say Detroit, you might not see as much out of some of the other ones. And I think, you know, in the U S though, you do get that more consumer regional dealer elements that all play into it. And then the press part kind of grew out of that. And really only Detroit ever achieved that almost like auto capital status. They were a member of the OICA, which is, I think a French group that certifies like the very top shows. Um, In Japan, it's Tokyo. 
you know, I, I imagine there was other regional shows, but not the kind that you would get on a plane and fly to. So uh, I, I think I think that's a really good point too, there, Joel. Yeah, and boy, I I hate to say this, but of those three, Detroit would probably make the most sense to drop as kind of one of the big shows because. LA and New York are just much, much bigger markets for these automakers to set up shop at, to show stuff at. Uh, and Detroit just isn't. And and Detroit is a very, like, American automaker-focused market. I mean, they sell a lot of GM, Stellantis, and Ford stuff here in Detroit, more than probably a lot of other places. It's... If you've never if you've never been around Detroit, the number of like especially Chargers and Challengers among other things yeah. is greater than probably just about any other city I've ever seen. Yeah, now that's an interesting point. I would probably disagree with you, although I can see where you're coming from with that for sure. I think I wouldn't disagree on the fact of the value of New York and L.A., but I do think if like especially the Detroit Three, but other automakers too wanted to try to capitalize on the idea of a Detroit auto show that cuts through the clutter that is bigger and more auto centric than say Chicago. It's not New York and LA, which frankly they would probably like parasitically compete with each other if there were no other auto shows. Um, I think if you're Detroit, you can argue that you can somewhat stand alone based on your status is like this, you know, industrial symbol. Um, but yeah, I mean, we'll see. I mean, I think you and I both are on the same page when it comes to just liking auto shows, what they do, how they can bring people together, how good they are for the media, how good they are for consumers. And I'll be interested to hear what you think of Tokyo when you get back and what it really feels like. Yeah. And actually, I... I completely forgot to mention Chicago in like the list of big American auto shows. It's like, oh yeah. I was being generous that. with that. That's if, from a consumer perspective, it's huge. From anything else, it's like it's not really a super relevant press show. It's more just like maybe you did a Super Bowl commercial and you want to try to show your car ten days later. Mm -hmm. Maybe. Yeah, and I mean, I I really like auto shows, and the thing is, I was I was going to the first time I went to the Detroit Auto Show was, I think it was two thousand eight. Um, I finally convinced my dad to for us to go up one weekend, and f from there on out, we went up there basically every week, every year until I was in college. So, uh, three or four years, and. I mean, we went because it was such a big deal and it was yeah. like, this was a chance to go see really cool cars in like the big flashy displays. And like, I, I, cause I mean, I feel like a lot of commentary has been about like, Oh, auto shows are good for the media. It, and they are, they're very helpful. Like for me, it's a chance to call, go talk to executives and to go check out cars. But also I think, I think it's, I think it's a big, I think it's a key thing for the public too. Cause it's a, it's a chance to foster, sort of uh, new generations of car enthusiasts because yeah, you can read about everything immediately, but like you want to go see it and sit in it yeah. and check it out in person because that's really cool. And that's 
a chance to go do it without being hounded by dealers, whether yep. you just want to see the car because you like cars or because you're shopping for cars and you want to be able to go and see something without being hounded by a dealer and also be able to check out a whole bunch of things all at once uh, without going from dealer to dealer to dealer. Um, but I could go on and on and we've only got so much time in the podcast. <laughs> yeah. I think it's interesting too, because there are, there's definitely a school of thought that car buying online could become, you know, increasingly important, common, easier, all sorts of things. And, you know, let's just say you're buying your Studebaker online and you don't want to go to said dealership. Car show is a great place to do it, you know, and then you go home or you get on your phone and you like, it's just all of the, the parts that people don't necessarily like about a dealership experience are gone. And you're going to this fun carnival event and then you're buying it on your phone. I mean, there's, I could see that model working. So I don't know. So speaking of car shopping, how do we spend some money? All right. So this comes from Reddit R Cars. I need to replace my Highlander Hybrid. Uh, the budget is $65,000 to spend. Opinion, please. Uh, so the potential buyer, a 49-year-old woman with grown kids that lives that live in other states, two 40-pound dogs, okay, uh, have had a 2011 Highlander Hybrid for 12 years and loved it. Went to replace it, and the new ones just felt dated and blah, okay? Acceptable, but they are larger and more sluggish than my old car. Felt sad to drop 50K on something that was just fine. Also, that much space felt like overkill for just me and my dogs, okay? So I like the hybrid option, looking at the Lexus RX, the Lexus NX, Toyota Highlander Hybrid, uh, among others. She likes the, the hybrid option and um, open to any suggestions. Major important factor is reliability. It's gonna be used on the highway. Uh, so looking for something that's smooth, quiet ride. The RAV4 felt a bit stiff and loud. Drives about 15,000 miles a year. Um, again, reliability is important. Don't wanna spend a ton on repairs. Uh, go to parks, hikes with the dogs. Lives in the Pacific Northwest and like all wheel drive, which is helpful, but not necessarily required and you know camping errands things like that so um in short that's kind of where we are highlander or something else yeah so i think she is actually has narrowed down her options pretty well mm -hmm. um of those i because I would agree. I think the RAV4 is tuned a little bit on the stiff side, uh, all mm -hmm. versions of it. I kind of like that. It, I think it makes it a little bit sportier feeling. Mm -hmm. But clearly that is not what she's looking for. Um, the NX, I think, would help with that. And I think would be a strong option. I am kind of leaning toward RX. Because it would be a bit larger. It would be a little bit more luxurious. And... I think I'm double checking some things here because I wanted to uh, make sure I've got the specs right. Because in my head, the thing that I was thinking of would be super nice would be the RX 500H with the hybrid max powertrain. Mm, yes. Because that's a really, really good powertrain. Good power, sounds smooth and refined. 
I'd like the efficiency to be a little bit better, but compared to the 2011 Highlander Hybrid, should still be really good. Mm-hmm. Um, the new one is very pretty. It's, I mean, it's just all around a very good vehicle. Um, that 500H with the Hybrid Max, it is a little bit on the pricey side. It would be, t- it would kind of be at the limit of that $69,000 price tag. Um, so what I'm trying to double check here uh, would be like specs on. There's also 350H. Yeah, so that's got, I think, the turbo, or or is it even turbo? Um, I do apologize for not, ha- for not having these specs right oh, off the top of my head. I don't usually... Lexus SUVs are not at the time are not at the forefront of my mind at all times. Um, I guess while I'm thinking of that, uh, what what are you thinking, Greg? Well, yeah, no, that's a that's a great point. So feel free to you know kind of dive into all of those different specs there. Uh, it's interesting for sixty five, you can get a lot of different things here. I think so. I would look at the uh, the Grand Cherokee plug-in or yeah i would look at the grand cherokee 4xe i think that could be interesting it's definitely off the list here but you know i think you know pacific northwest you want something maybe outdoorsy ish i think you know you have two dogs you want a little bit of space i think you could look at that Uh, and i also was looking at the rx i thought that would be a nice way to take your familiarity with like the toyota brand get something different but i still think it's going to feel kind of familiar to you i think you're going to like, you know, feel very comfortable at like a Lexus dealer and all that good stuff. And like, it's like, you're still in the family. You're just going to a different branch of the family. So I think that could be interesting. Um, and those are two of the ones that stand out to me. I think, you know, the NX could work. It, um, you know, in my mind, it's a little bit of a smaller vehicle, but you know, it, it certainly could work, especially cause these are 40 pound dogs. Um, so, you know, you're, you know, you're okay there. Um, but yeah, those are two that popped up into my head. Um, yeah, Yeah, I think Grand Cherokee plug-in hybrid, that's a good one. Um, and actually looking at the Lexus stuff, looks like the 350H is the non-turbo hybrid. Um, Mm. that, that, it's probably a little bit rough and coarse. Um, cause that's similar to like what the what the RAV4s and stuff get. I, I like Grand Cherokee plug-in hybrid. That's a good thought. And that also reminds me, I think CX-90 plug-in hybrid would be an excellent choice. And I yes. know... Yes, yes. And because it, it drives excellent. It is maybe just a tad on the firm side. Like I mean, as monsters are, but I wouldn't say overly so. Um, that budget would allow you to get basically the nicest one that you can, that's on offer. And it's and those top spec CX90s are really luxurious, and I know that she said that reliability is a key thing. The plug-in hybrid CX90 still uses basically the same four-cylinder that Mazda has been using for years, and that's a really trustworthy engine. So I think CX90 plug-in hybrid would be superb. So I think like Lexus RX, Mazda CX90. And Jeep Grand Cherokee would all be really good things to go check out. Yeah. I think we kind of have, you know, 
cobbled together a good field here to like confirm, hey, if this is what you want to do, we support that. But here's a couple other choices. CX-90 is solid too. I think um, both that and the Jeep, I think are going to be more interesting than the Highlander that she's been driving around in for quite some time. And the Lexus too, but I also think it's like, you've got three choices of how far you want to go from where you currently are. Um, nothing wrong with the current Highlander or the Grand Highlander, which is probably too big. But given the the choice here, maybe make a change. Try something different. You know, it's just a car. You can always get something different in a few years too. Sell it. Yeah. And I would also maybe throw in possibly Kia Sorento. Um, yeah. Either the hybrid or the plug-in hybrid version. They're pretty nice as well. Um, but when you when she said like reliability that has me leaning toward like the lexus and the mazda yeah um so so yeah i i would say especially check out lexus check out mazda and maybe also check out kia and jeep all right cool uh, if you'd like us to spend your money, that's podcast.autoblog.com. If you enjoy the show, and we hope you do, please give us five stars on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get the show. Shout out to Eric Meyer for making us sound good. He's our longtime producer. Good hanging out with you this week, Joel. We'll see you next week. <laughs>